Good morning. Great to see all of you. I like that. Left side, right side. I I've thought more of first baseline, third baseline, center field. One afternoon in a synagogue, a rabbi was overcome with rapture and threw himself to the ground proclaiming, Lord, I am nothing. Not to be bested, the cantor prostrated himself and exclaimed, Lord, I am nothing. The temple handyman, working in a bank of the sanctuary, joined the fervor, prostrating himself and crying, Lord, I am nothing. Whereupon the rabbi nudged the cantor and whispered, Look who thinks he's nothing. This Jewish joke told by a philosophy professor from Biola University captures what is frustrating about humility. He writes, Our attempts to be humble easily backfire. Our wish to be humble turns out to be motivated by a deeper desire to be better than others. Our display of humility turns out to be an occasion of pride. This paradox plays out in our celebrity culture since humility remains a prized virtue, a, a leftover from our Christian past. We all want to appear humble. A 2017 New York Times article pointed out this contradiction in those who say they are humbled. Quote, lately it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory for politicians athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, like copped, and thumbed up. Diving at random into the internet and social media finds this new humility everywhere. A soap op opera actress on is humbled by the outpouring of love from fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and holiday spirit. The New York Times article goes on, and yet none of these people sounded very humbled at all. On the contrary, they themselves hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. When did humility get so cocky and vainglorious? The writer asks. Humility is also slowly making its way into business schools and training. According to the Wall Street Journal, there's a new fad among top-level executives, it's called humility. The article titled The Case for Humble Executives explores the business benefits of this once unpopular leadership virtue. The article notes, among executives, humility is the flavor of the day, says Fred Hassan, a former CEO and author of a book on leadership. Companies increasingly prize humble leaders because they listen well. Admit mistakes. Share the limelight, recruiters and coaches say. The servant leadership model promotes collaboration, says one chief executive. Of course, 
there's one major problem with humble pie. You have to actually become humble. Apparently, fakes abound, like the former lieutenant of Krispy Kreme, as in donuts. According to one observer, he took the limelight. He didn't understand the humility part of acting humble. After everyone discovered he was merely faking to get ahead in business, the Krispy Kreme board fired him. As one business expert noted, if you have to act humble, it won't work. You either are or you aren't. A leadership coach from Western Seminary said it this way, there is a humility shortage in our culture. We like winners. We follow the worthy. We are impressed by quick thinkers. And we can't tell the difference between celebrities we admire and leaders we should follow. Now, sadly, this humility shortage is also in the church. We have to look inside and admit that the same characteristics exist in the church of leaders and of followers. You know, not all scandals of Christian leaders are from those who have fallen into sexual sin. Many lose their teams, they lose their churches from a demanding, egotistical, and controlling style of leadership. Fellow pastors or staff members give accounts of angry outbursts or demeaning treatment. And followers, for their, in, on their end, they demand often that their leaders fit into the reigning models of leadership in the marketplace or in politics. The belief that leadership is influence, points out another observer, can easily get misinterpreted into a faulty belief that a leader wins every debate or the leader always gets his or her way. The notion that a great leader helps the best ideas win gets replaced with the notion that a great leader is the one who stands out by always having the best ideas and always having the strongest influence. Now, the humility shortage in the church, the faulty view of leadership by leaders and followers is undermining our witness. And in ways I'm not sure that we fully grasp. Good being who we are speaks the word of God. Envisioning what humility is and how it ought to shape the followers of Jesus, both leaders and followers. Now, if you read our e-letter this past week, I called this message vertical humility. Now, if you didn't read our e-letter, shame on you. <laughs> no, if you didn't read the e-letter, you didn't know what the title was. Nonetheless, I'd like to tweak it a little bit and call this message the paradox of humility because we want to appear humble and we want to advertise it to show that we are morally superior. That is the paradox. So turn in your Bibles, and you'll need your Bibles this morning. I encourage you to look at it. Are your devices? We're going to look at this next section of Philippians in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. So will you stand? 
as we read God's word. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a wicked and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Just keep standing and let's, let's pray together. Father, um, we come humbly before you and pray that your words would sink deep into our hearts and minds this morning in such a way that they transform the way we see you and the way we see ourselves in such a way that our relationships might improve, in such a way that we would understand partnership in friendship, partnership in marriage, partnership in this work that you have called us to, what you call the work of the gospel. And like Epaphroditus, we are all fellow workers, co-workers, fellow soldiers together in this calling. And might we grasp more deeply this morning this paradox of humility that you might get a ton of glory and a ton of applause in this city from our collective witness. In Christ's name we pray. To the glory of God we pray. For our good we pray. Amen. Amen.
All right, now you can sit down. Okay, so as I read this morning, maybe you were asking, where did you see humility in this passage? Well, it, there in the first word in verse 12, therefore takes us backwards to last week's passage. And in last week's passage, Paul called on every believer to imitate the humility of Jesus. In humility, Jesus made himself a servant. In humility, Jesus emptied out his own life. In humility, he was obedient to God the Father, even to death, even to death on a cross. Now, in the end, Paul does not totally fixate on humility. Humility was not the goal as an end in and of itself. So Paul reminds him that Jesus did not die in shame. His public crucifixion and humiliation are not how he is finally remembered. God resurrected him, giving him the greatest name, a distinction above every human being, so that everyone will acknowledge on a future day that Jesus is the ultimate king. Jesus is Lord. But it is humility that Paul calls us to imitate and in the rest of chapter 2, we get a feel for what humility looks like. Now, we're going to break this down into two big ideas. First, in verses 12 through 16, Paul emphasizes vertical humility. That's humility this way, upwards towards God. And then in the rest of the chapter, Paul emphasizes horizontal humility. That is humility going this way, humility between one another. So let's start with vertical humility in verse 12. In verses 12 and 13, we have one of the clearest passages in Scripture showing how God changes us. It begins with the exhortation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that our salvation is uncertain, that it hangs in a balance, that only through continually groveling before the fierce majesty of God that we can maybe make it into heaven even barely? This is not what the scripture means. Our salvation does not depend on our works, our right actions, our words, or a demonstration of proper respect to God. Paul is not using salvation here as an object yet to be reached. What he is saying is that you have already received your salvation. Now work at it so as to enjoy its full benefits. Think of it like marriage. All the time, we are telling couples, work at your marriage, work at your marriage. It takes effort. It takes effort. Louise and I were with a couple Friday night that is getting married in September. And the topic of the night was conflict resolution. All of that takes an incredible amount of communication and rolling up your sleeves. So that, and we ask the question, so 
why even address these topics so that they can enjoy the full benefits of marriage. When this couple takes their vows and exchanges their rings, they will be married. And once they are married, they will not be 50% married, nor 75% married. They will be 100% married. They can't be married any less. They can't be married anymore. It's their new status. This is how Alec Motier said it. Marriage once possessed is possessed in full, but it merits a lifetime of exploration, enjoyment, development, and discovery. In the same way, Paul says, work out your salvation so that you enter into it fully. For example, your experience of the multidimensional love of God, your experience of the unlimited goodness of God, learning how to walk with him and to every day remain in his love and on and on. So your going to heaven does not depend on your spiritual performance, but your experience of God's salvation, your enjoyment of God's salvation does depend on you. It is not all on him. It does require a cooperative response from you. How do we do this? Look at the end of the verse. We do it through fear and trembling. Now, what does this mean? Again, Motir helps us. This is not the fear of a lost sinner before the Holy One but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers, a fear of not what he might do to us, but of the hurt we might do to him. You see, fear and trembling keeps us focused on our position before God. When we see how big he is, we see how small we are. Fear and trembling means there is a sense of sacredness and reverence that is not lost on us, being in all of him retains in us a sensitivity and an awareness of our weakness and our dependency upon him. And because we cannot do it on our own, Paul reminds us in verse 13 that it is God who is at work in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Do you see the tension Paul is navigating? Yes. You must apply effort to experience your salvation, but even that is a response to what God is doing in and around you. Are you aware that God is at work in your life every single day? The Greek word for work in verse 13 is where we get the word energy. God is directing his energy towards you. Our work is to cooperate with him. And to what end is he working? That you might do his will. That you might become like Jesus. Now, this spirituality is more than the very popular 
but misguided phrase, let go and let God. But it is also not just a try harder mentality that is a part of so many discipleship models. Both of these extremes will short circuit your relationship with God. Neither extreme captures what Paul is saying here about how we grow spiritually. Now, staying with vertical humility, look at verse 14. Here's one for you. Try it today. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. These verses, the ones that follow, show that Paul has the Old Testament in view. Thus, I think what he has in mind when he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing, is a picture of the Jews who wandered in the desert for 40 years. They did not enter the promised land because they were known for what? Grumbling and arguing. They lost their sacredness and reverence, captured in the phrase fear and trembling. They treated God with contempt despised his gifts, reduced him in size to be on par with the gods and idols of their pagan neighbors. We are often guilty of the same thing. And when we grumble and argue, look what happens in this this text. We lose our witness. We no longer shine like stars in the sky. The church becomes impotent before the world when we grumble and argue. In verse 16, Paul introduces one more piece that is needed, one more piece that's required to hold on to our witness. Look at it. He says we must hold fast the word of life. In the last few years, many Christians have loosened their grip on Scripture. It has been happening to friends, people we know, as well as well-known believers at an alarming rate. In an effort to deconstruct Christianity, and by that what I mean is it's an effort to pull out the true beliefs from the Bible from tradition, or to pull out true beliefs from the Bible from those that are humanly constructed. Well, many have tugged so hard that When it's all said and done, they have no belief left at all. In some Christian circles, it has been postured as humility to not be so dogmatic. And yes, we would agree that it is humble to not be dogmatic about things in the Bible that are genuinely debatable. But around the core historic beliefs of Jesus, his person, his work, on these we can be nothing but dogmatic. For if they are not true, then the very essence of what it means to be a Christian has collapsed into endless relativism and cynicism. Now, a century ago, G.K. Chesterton anticipated this age. He began to detect the coming cynicism that would say 
Nothing can be known for sure. Long before even the term postmodernism was coined, Chesterton saw this cynicism that would believe that nothing can be known for sure. Nothing can be held with certainty. Chesterton called this a dislocated humility. Here's what he wrote from the book Orthodoxy. He said this, that humility in past ages was largely meant as a restraint upon the arrogance and infinity of the appetite of man. He, man, was always outstripping his mercies with newly invented needs. But what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that he asserts is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason or scripture. For the old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder, but the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which will make him stop working altogether. You see, to hold fast the word of life is humility, because it recognizes I am not the final arbiter of truth in the universe. God is. My wisdom, my reason does not supersede God's. This is why Jeremiah says the heart of man is full of insanity because we think that our reason supersedes God's. I mean, it's not even on the same level, right? It's not even close. It is humility because as a creature, I bow to the, cre to the creator and his eternal wisdom. This is vertical humility. And vertical humility is the fountain of humility, the source of humility. Let's turn now for a few moments to horizontal humility. Verse 17. Remember, Paul is teasing out this idea of what it means to imitate the humility of Jesus. And he shares his own attitude and then gives the example of two co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look first at verse 17. This is a look inside of Paul's heart. He writes, But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. What does that mean? Well, Paul is using the metaphor of an Old Testament sacrificial offering. And in this symbolism, his life, his life, not the goat, not the lamb, his life is on the altar. He has offered it for the gospel and for the Philippians. And even if his life is poured out, remember, he, there's a chance he'll be executed here. Even if his life is consumed by the sacrificial fires, look what he says. This is like stunning. He says, I am glad, he says, and I'm overjoyed to do it because Christ did it for me. In verse 18, he says, this is equally shocking. You too should rejoice with me. 
In other words, he says to them, don't say to me, oh, poor Paul, why do you have to waste away like a criminal in that Roman prison? No, Paul says, don't have pity on me. He understood firmly that if he suffered, it was not in shame. It was a privilege to suffer for Christ. Look down at verses 20 and 21, an example of a co-worker, Timothy. Look at what he says about him again. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy is unlike the gospel preachers in Rome that we met in chapter 1, the ones who took advantage of Paul's imprisonment. Timothy is unlike some of the members of the Philippian church that we'll meet later who were pursuing empty glory, complaining and arguing over petty or secondary matters. Timothy was a true example of one who emptied himself for others, imitating Christ's humility. And a third example is Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus apparently was an envoy from the church of Philippi. He brought with him a large financial gift for Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. It's helpful to realize what prison was like back then. It's not like it is today. and it's, it's very bad today. But back then, it was far worse. Like, you didn't get a meal in prison. You didn't get basic necessities in prison. If you got a meal, if you got basic necessities, they were brought to you by your family and your friends. So this is what the, the church in Philippi did. This was not an easy trip from Philippi to Rome. It was a long way. According to one source, estimates for this journey ranged between 700 and 1,200 miles, depending on which route was taken. The trip could have meant taking a sea route with its dangers. The same source said that in the best conditions, such a trip could be made by foot in about six weeks. In less favorable circumstances, it could take three months. Now, he was undoubtedly carrying a large amount of money, so others went with him. And having gotten ill on the way or while in Rome, he sent one of his party home with the news, hey, just texting you back, we've safely arrived. But guess what? Epaphroditus is deathly ill. In verse 30, Paul says he risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ, implying that this trip was not easy. And, and very likely dangerous. Epaphroditus was a true example of one who emptied himself for others, imitating Christ's humility. This is horizontal humility. Humility extended this way. A true concern for others, willing to risk for others. This is a two-dimensional humility, right? vertical, horizontal. You see, to be a humble person is not only humility towards God. You cannot say, I am humble before God, and then live selfishly and not pour out your life for others. You cannot say, I am humble before God, and then be so guarded, so closed up, so in control of your life that you are unwilling to risk involvement with others. It's really true, isn't it? To be involved with others means you will suffer. 
There's no other way around it. But Paul, for himself, I mean, he had a very developed understanding of suffering, a very developed understanding of it. And so he didn't try to control his life, nor Timothy, nor Epaphroditus, but they were willing to risk it. Now, you also can't be truly humble without being humble before God because your starting point is off. Humility requires a sober and realistic assessment of who you are, and that includes your creatureliness. Okay, that's a word meaning that you're a creature, not the creator. You're not the founder, not the author. He is the founder and he is the author. Our culture is so confused about humility. So confused. They see it as a virtue, but when the rubber meets the road, it feels more like a vice. One really insightful business leader said, strong leaders wear their humility lightly and rarely showcase their genius or their humility. Now, this is similar to what I said earlier, that Paul, this is a really key point here, that Paul did not treat Jesus's humility as an end in and of itself. You see, when we regard, believer, humility as an end goal in and of itself, as a pinnacle to attain, then humility comes out in all kinds of weird distortions because we're still focused on ourselves. (laughs) And like the celebrities, we end up, if even subtly, advertising our humility. You know, through the years, I've become so conscious of my ambition. Some of just because of my sinful nature, some of it because of some, some brokenness in my early years. But regardless, this, this crazy ambition, often selfish, often unhealthy. And because of that, I tend to focus, 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 focus with laser-like focus on being humble. And what that does is it leaves me fixated on my performance without the spiritual power to love. I might be soft-spoken or overly deferential or self-deprecating, but guess what? I'm still focused on me. You see, this is a moralistic approach to change, meaning I'm still focused on self and I'm still relying on self. You know, some biographers of George Washington, some later biographers, say that behind that steely glaze that we see in so many of the portraits, behind that unmoving stoicism was a tremendous internal drive to curb his ambition. And there are lots of reasons to, to, uh, to think that this is the case. Now, I love our first president, but if that's true, this is the same thing. That is a moralistic approach to change. What I had to do and what I have to do in my life is realize that my natural self will never improve. My natural self will never wake up being humble. It can never be humble. 
what I have to do, what I had to do was recognize that my old proud self was crucified with Christ. And then focus not on being humble, but focus on pursuing Jesus and loving Jesus and realize that in him, in union with him, through Christ in me, I am a recreated self. I have a new self in Christ. And I can now live in the power of my new heart. It's been recreated. I still struggle with the old self, but when I die, I will live in the fullness of that new self. And so will you if you're a believer in Jesus. You see, in my new heart, I am focused on Jesus and the progress of others. Humility is thus attained without being advertised or recognized. It is a byproduct of that pursuit. C.S. Lewis says something like this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is not thinking of yourself at all. And when this happens, friends, we experience something beautiful. Um, some writers have called it self-forgetfulness. First John 4, John might have said it like this, that perfect love casts out fear. So when we put this whole passage together then, Paul has challenged us with several commands and the examples of friends and co-workers. And keep in mind that throughout this book, the Holy Spirit is seeking to bring to this church a greater level of joy, a greater level of unity, and a greater level of partnership. And so, friends, he is trying to do with us greater joy, greater unity, greater partnership. And what will bring it? If I were to try to sum up this passage in a single sentence, here's what I would say. Because Christ emptied himself for us, we should empty ourselves for one another. This is the attitude required to truly partner in the gospel with others. It certainly is not just about me. You know, I've said that our culture is confused about humility. Many of I've been confused about it. Many of you have been confused about it. It's very interesting to see, though, it's not always been this way. Humility, before the time of Jesus, was not always a prized virtue as it is today. Pre-Christian, ancient Greco-Roman culture had nothing positive to say about humility. Humility actually comes from the root word um, humus, meaning soil or dirt. And so uh, in this era, humble people uh, in the Greco-Roman era, the time that Jesus came, the Greco-Roman era, humble people were those who were close to the dirt. They had to eke out their existence. And according to one scholar in the Roman Empire, the humble people weren't bad. They were just the lowly, the poor, the massive underclass of society who were of no interest to us who mattered. Us few well-bred elites whose privilege allows us to aspire to virtue or to excellence. Again, read some of the Greek philosophers and you'll see that pervasive view of humility. 
This same writer goes on then and try to picture this. Just try to picture Jesus coming into the Greco-Roman world. He says this, you can imagine then how preposterous it was when a ragtag group of Jews began to assert all over the Roman Empire that the God of the universe was a wayfaring peasant from Palestine who taught and lived as though the humble were the truly blessed people of the earth, who was then executed as a criminal by the Roman state, who raised from the dead, and who now reigns over who now reigns as Lord over all of human history. Today, because Jesus came and because his teachings came, he turned the world upside down, such to the fact that even to this very day, even our secular culture can't deny nor resist the beauty and value of humility. But friends, for that to continue, they need our witness of Jesus to make it come alive and to see what it looks like. Our humility, friends, is going to adorn the words that we share. And I think it is of a particular relevance to this age we live in. Our humility is going to make the gospel words sing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our moments together this morning to learn and how stunning your scriptures always are, how relevant they are, how they speak with such precision to the time and the day that we live in. Father, help us to pursue Jesus afresh. Help us to live, each of us, in the power of the recreated self, the new self that is in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, let us crucify with Christ the old nature, with all of its lust and all of its selfish ambitions and all of its root of anger and all of its roots of competition and all of its roots of differentiation and all of its aspirations to justify ourselves through our own worth. Thank you that Jesus declares and proclaims over us today that you are justified. You are free. Jesus completed and fulfilled the law so that in our weakness, his righteousness might be applied to us. And we now have the power to love. We have the power and the freedom to love like we've never loved before. To step into that, the beauty of perfect love cast out fear. Perfect love casts out insecurity. Perfect love casts out inadequacy. Perfect love, Father, let us love you and love one another. Let us be humble before you and humble before one another.
Let us now, Father, respond to your word in song and to worship you, to bow as creatures before our mighty God, recognizing your wisdom is above ours. Your truth is above ours. Your insights are above ours. Your reason is above ours. Let us worship. Through Jesus, amen. Oh, 